think there are times in our life when we just don't want to believe the truth. We refuse to believe the truth because of the consequences, because of maybe some of the um, things that would have to do, and uh, we don't want to believe it. And it's like the old uh, Jack Nicholson line in the movie, A Few Good Men, you can't handle the truth. And so we don't want to believe the truth. We don't want to deal with it. We don't want to go there because of all the ramifications that are involved. Also, there are times when we just want to do that which is wrong. We deliberately choose to do the wrong thing. We hope that the consequences won't be as great as what we are told they will be. Uh, we do the wrong thing and hope that there's not a price that has to be paid. And even if there is a price to be paid, we figure, well, you know, we can deal with that later when it comes. And finally, there's another reason that um, we've been led uh, astray, and that is that uh, there are times in our lives where we fall victims to the so-called innocent or harmless among us. And I love the story that I heard recently of a preacher who was walking down the street. And as he was out taking a walk and he's walking down the street, he saw across the street a little boy. And a little boy was up on the porch or the patio of a home and he was trying to reach the doorbell and he was jumping up and down and he couldn't reach it. And he went out in the yard and got a stick and he tried to reach it and he couldn't reach it. And so the, the preacher thought he would help him out and he walked across the street and went up behind him, put his hand on his shoulder and looked at the little boy and said, young man, is there anything that I can help you with? And the boy looked up and said, sure, mister, would you mind ringing the bell? And so the preacher leaned over, rang the bell, knelt back down next to him and said, okay, young man, now what do we do? And that little boy looked at him and said, now we run. <laughs> and uh, kind of duped him into it, you know what I mean? And sometimes that happens. And uh, the point of all of it is, is that within each of us is the propensity to be misled or to believe a lie at the expense of the truth. And because of this, God warns us against such dangers and he offers to equip us to confront those moments in life that will occur. We have already, we've recently begun a series of uh, messages that are designed to address the question, what does the future hold? And if you recall, in our last meeting, we were introduced to a serious problem that God not only warns us of, but also gives us insight as to how to be prepared to recognize and deal with that. And that is the problem that God calls the one of religious apostasy. Now, for those of us who are not familiar with the term, Basically, religious apostasy simply means this, that we are told in the Bible that it is a sign helping us to know that the end times are growing near and that God's program is right on track. But as far as the word apostasy is concerned, we're dealing with a term that means to depart. It means to set aside that which we held at one point to depart and go in another direction. And it's God's warning that there's a very serious danger to be recognized and considered. And that is the temptation that each of us will face at one point or another to depart from the foundational truths of the Christian faith. And that's basically what we're dealing with when we talk about apostasy. There will be a temptation, an enticement, to set aside that which God says are the foundational truths of what we are to believe and to walk from that, depart from that, fall from that, and to be lured into believing other things that lead us astray. If you recall, we take, we've taken a look at a couple of the items we're going to look at. There's five overall, but the first one is we saw the notice, uh, the, the, the notice of development of religious apostasy. We saw that this is nothing new, that it was, it, inter, it was introduced into the early church very early on. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, and he said, I'm amazed that you so, have so quickly departed you know, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you've already been led astray, that you've already been deceived, you've already bought into the lies that have been introduced, leading you to another direction. And we noticed that it's, it was true in the past, it was certainly true, and it's progressed throughout the centuries. And then there's an ultimate climactic act of apostasy that will take place as the age or the period of tribulation is entered into, and that's the seven years that are still into our future that God warns from Daniel chapter 9, talking about the 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year period of time that's known as the Great Tribulation, which we'll discuss next time in great detail. But the point that God wants us to be aware of is this, that there is a danger and a temptation to lay aside that which God says are the foundational truths of what you and I should believe as God's people, to lay those aside and buy into the lies that will evolve as time has progressed. We live in a day and age where there's much deception. And because of the uh, media communication that we deal with, that deception is readily brought right to our homes. Uh, before in the history there was pockets of uh, deception or deceit there was pockets of apostasy that took place all throughout the world 
However, with the age of communication, as great a, of, of a medium as it is to get a message out, if the message is true, it's a wonderful way to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it's also a way that those who are liars and deceivers, they are false teachers, they're false prophets, they're false messiahs, and Jesus warned up of those, so that they also use the same means to try to get their message across as well. The problem that we have is this. How do we know what is true, and how do we know what is false? And how do we discern in between those two? I like what uh, J. Vernon McGee used to say, um, and he said it every morning. It was a pray, prayer that he prayed, and it was this. He said, as he got up in the mornings, he said, Lord, there are going to be people that you bring into my life that I'll be able to help, and there'll be people that are brought into my life that are going to try to hurt me. He says, God, teach me to know the difference between the two. And that's a very wise prayer, and I think it's a prayer that we all need when it comes to discerning truth. God, there are going to be messages in our world today that are true, that reflect your truth, that will draw us closer to you, and there will be those messages that are out there that are false. And if we buy into it, we will be misled, and we will be led in a course or direction that seems right to men, but its end is ultimate destruction. God, teach me. Give me the wisdom, the discernment to know the difference between the two. And so that's what we're looking at as we talk about the development of religious apostasy. The second thing is that the Word of God also gives us a description of this apostasy. When we talked about messianic claims, Jesus said there will be many who come in my day. There are many who claim that they know the way of salvation. Trust me, follow me, I'm going to take you to an experience, or I'm going to take you into an existence or a relationship with God or gods of some kind that will bring peace and harmony and joy into your life. There's something missing in your life, and we are here to try to fill that. And if you would just follow me, I'm going to lead you in the right direction. The interesting thing is, whether or not that's true, that, God, that, that Jesus warned that, hey, you know what, there are going to be a lot of people that come with that message, and many people are going to buy into it, and they're going to be deceived, and they're going to be misled. How do you know if you're walking in the right direction, if you're following the right message, if the message that you're hearing is leading you closer to a relationship with God, or is a counterfeit message that actually you buy into that's going to lead you away from God? That's a, that's a valid question. Talk about miraculous signs. We're going to look at that this morning. Doctrinal heresies. One of the some of the first um, doctrinal heresies, or those things that were uh, false that were introduced into the church, was the, the denying that Jesus Christ was God come in flesh. They denied the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is as he claims to be God, and that they also denied the humanity of Jesus Christ because they believed in our human bodies nothing is good. And yet the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is both God and man, that he, that he is divine and he is human. And that's a difficult thing for people to grasp. So what they did was they said, well, you know what? It's hard for me to understand, so I'm going to throw out the stuff that I don't understand. And my answer to them is simply this. There are a lot of things in life that you believe that you don't understand, that you know are true, and that you've embraced as well. If you threw out everything that you don't understand, there's not much left. Um, some of you got it. They also, de they also denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. We believe the Bible clearly teaches that on the third day, according to the scriptures, God had predicted and foretold that Jesus Christ, after his death, he would be raised bodily from the grave. And that's exactly what took place. While the early church was introduced with the heresy that said, well, we don't believe that. We don't believe in the bodily resurrection. We believe that Jesus was some type of spirit being. We don't believe that he, was, that he had a physical body. We don't believe that he raised from the dead. And they introduced that. And that, that heresy is continuing to this day. Other doctrinal heresies, they denied the second coming of Jesus Christ. In 2 Peter chapter 3, there were mockers and scoffers who came and said, Hey, where is, where is the sign of his coming? He said that he, that, he, that he was coming back. Where is he? And it's been 2,000 years. He's still not here. And those mockers and the scoffers, they've increased their scoffing. And the last thing we saw was that there's a denial that salvation is by grace and by God's grace alone. It is because of the great mercy of God and his love for humanity that he sent Jesus Christ, he gave us his son, that whosoever would believe in him and him alone would not perish but have everlasting life. There is nothing that we can add to what Jesus did. Jesus, as he died on the cross, said these three words, it is finished. It is done. It is the masterpiece of God throughout all of human history. It was planned before the foundation of the world that God would offer his son as a sacrifice for the sins of humanity and that whosoever would believe that would be saved and would not perish. There is nothing that you and I can do. There is nothing that we can do to earn our way into heaven. The Bible is so specific and clear on that and all that it does when you think that you can do something that's better than what Jesus did on the cross that is heresy, that is blasphemy and it denies the very work of our Lord and Savior who gave his life for us. That heresy has been going on and continues to go on to this very day. 
we need to take a look at the third thing which leads us to this, and that is the deception of religious apostasy. Now, when we're talking about the deception, we, we mean very simply that, that it's very difficult for us at times to be able to identify that which is not true. And in Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 and 5, Jesus warned, if you've got your Bibles, you might want to take a look at that. In Matthew 24, verses 4 and 5, Jesus warned of this deception. And he gave very clear and stern warnings regarding those who would come in his name. In Matthew 24, look at verse 4 and 5, he says this. And this is in response to a question that the disciples asked. says, tell us when, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? What their question was is the same question that many of us ask in this. Hey, can you tell us a little bit about what we can expect in the future? And his answer to them was simply this. And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you, deceives you. See to it that you don't buy into their lies, for many will come in my name saying that I am the Christ or I am the Savior, Messiah, and will mislead many. He says that many will be deceived. It's important to understand that this departure from essential truths of the Christian faith is so deceptive that Jesus warned that it will deceive many. And that's important to grasp. It's not just going to deceive a handful of people or the radical fringe groups that we hear of or see introduced to us you know, in the media of some sort. Uh, you know, the, 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 the nutcases that are sitting around waiting for the mothership to come by, you know, and they're all going to get beamed up Scotty. I mean, you know, the problem is, and, and see, and, and here's what's so deceptive about that, because I don't know very many people that would put themselves into that category, Right? What's ironic about it is even the people that are in that category didn't see themselves in that category. And that's what the deceptive nature of false teaching is all about. Because we look at that and say, wow, that's really crazy. But what God wants to warn us is this. Hey, you know what? There are many that are in that group. It's just not that particular group, but it's in the group of those who are deceived. And they've bought into and believe a lie. Now, this is very important because if many will be deceived, I'm, real, I'm a realist enough to ask myself this question. Hey, am I one of those who are deceived? Because if many are in that group, there's a good possibility that I might be in that group and you might be in that group and we need to recognize and understand what God has to say so that we can exclude ourselves from that group. Look back, go to uh, verse 24. He also goes on to say, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. If you remember in our study in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, we're told that the coming world leader, the Antichrist, the, uh, the son of lawlessness or the son of perdition, man of lawlessness, all the different titles that the Bible gives for this coming world leader or dictator, which we'll talk about also in another session, but there are many titles that are given to him, but one thing that we know about him is this, that he will perform signs and wonders, but they will be false signs and false wonders. And they will be so convincing, notice what he says, they will be so convincing that even if it was possible, God's people would even be misled. The elect are chosen of God, and we'll talk about the elect as we get into that, but the elect are chosen of God, if possible, even they would be misled and deceived by these great signs and wonders. Now look what Jesus says. Behold, pay attention, listen up is what that means. I have told you in advance. I am warning you ahead of time. You know, one thing I love about the Word of God, and that's this, that God tells us today what we can expect and anticipate tomorrow. And I don't know about you, but I like to know what to anticipate as far as the future is concerned because it helps me when it materializes to be ready and to be prepared to deal with it as we need to deal with it. That day will come. Are you ready for that day? If you've ever gone to a doctor and had any kind of medical procedure done, there's always a certain sense of comfort when he says, okay, right about now, this is going to hurt. And when they're right, you know, you can prepare a little for it. Now, how bad it's going to hurt is another thing, but you know it's going to hurt. Now, you never want to hear a doctor when he's doing that not say anything to you or not tell you that this is going to hurt. If he says, hey, this isn't going to hurt and it hurts, and you hear him go, oops, that's not good. So you'll want to know. And Jesus said, Behold, I've told you this in advance so that you'll be prepared to watch for this and to deal with it. 
That's what we need to look at. In 2 Peter 2, verses, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, we read this, that many will follow their destructive ways. Who are they? They are false teachers, those who come with a false message. And many will follow their destructive ways, false teachers. Now the question is, how can we prepare ourselves so that we don't become their victims? The answer is very simple. We must become familiar with the primary methods that they use to deceive. If we're aware of the methods they use to deceive, we will know what to look for, and the chances are much greater that we won't buy into those lies. So I want to just share with you five primary methods of deception that God has uh, felt fit to give us so that we will not become victims of those who are teaching that which is wrong before God. The first thing I mentioned a moment ago in this, you know, an interesting thing about deception is this. Deception or enticement, the temptation to do that which is wrong by promising something good. Temptation has what is known in the real estate industry as curb appeal. You know, if you've ever heard somebody talk about curb appeal, they're talking about the fact when you drive up to somebody's house and you park out in front, you look around and go, oh, this is a very attractive place. It has curb appeal. Well, see, temptation, which is the enticement to do that which is wrong before God, always has curb appeal. There's always something attractive about it that draws us into it. Let's face it, if it wasn't attractive, we wouldn't buy into it. See, Satan is, you know, is, is a counterfeiter, and, he's a, and he appears as a minister of light. From the very beginning, the Bible says in the book of Genesis that this creature that God created, uh, the, the serpent was the most beautiful creature in all of the garden. And, and, and it's easy to understand how Adam bought into the lie and how, de- how Eve was deceived by it. Because Satan was not the being that we see on TV. He's not the little dude in the pitchfork with the goatee, you know, running around going, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you. You know, because if you saw him running after you, I could just picture if that was Satan in the garden going up to Adam saying, hey, hey, eat the fruit, eat the fruit, eat the fruit. Uh, I, I got a funny feeling... That, that Adam would say, I don't think I want to eat that fruit. But when he came as an appearance of light or deceived him, he was the most beautiful creature that God ever created. And so that beauty, he let his guard down, and once he let his guard down, he was open to the temptation that was presented. We need to recognize and understand that that is true and that methodology has not changed from the very beginning. It is always packaged in a very pretty package, but you know what? The end consequences are always greater than the temporary benefits, and that's where we get hooked. Miraculous signs. As I mentioned in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, the Bible says that this world leader, when he comes, will come with all power and signs and false or lying wonders. This is how he will deceive the multitudes. Now, if you remember, the word antichrist has to do with not only a person who is opposed to Jesus Christ, but also comes as one who imitates Jesus Christ, or instead of. So as we look at that, we begin to realize that he will deceive multitudes, which is, of course, is an imitation of Jesus Christ, whom the Bible said performed miracles and wonders and signs, Acts chapter 2, verse 22, that God testified that Jesus was the Christ, or Messiah, through wonders and signs and miracles that he performed. John the Baptist in prison asked his disciples to go ask Jesus if he was the one, the savior of the world, the one that he had been waiting for, the one the world had been waiting for. And if you remember, the answer was very simple. He told John's disciples to go back to John in prison and say, look, tell him the blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. And John knew at that time that those would be the signs and wonders that Jesus would do or the Messiah would do that had never taken place in the history of the world. And that's all that John needed to hear. He didn't say, okay, now next set of questions. That was it. That was the end of the conversation. He was who we've been waiting for, the Savior of the world. That's why the angel told Mary to name him Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And the bottom line is that Jesus Christ is the long-promised one of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, promised before the foundation of the world. So Now, during the apostolic age, miracles were given to verify the message of the apostles as well. In Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, we read that they were given signs and wonders and miracles that they did to basically validate the fact that they were genuine messengers from God. We notice that also in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the same thing, that they were sent by God. Now, listen very carefully. Miracles, however, miracles alone never prove that a man is sent from God. We must also look at his message... And we must also look at his character 
in order to determine if this person is from God or not. Miracles alone are not enough to know whether a person is truly from God and expressing the message of God. We must examine the message that comes with the miracle or the wonder, and we must also examine the character of the person who is involved in the process. Do you understand that? Do you hear me? Just nod your head yes. This is very important because as religious apostasy increases in these latter days, there will be more signs and wonders and miracles that are going to suck people in and depart them from the foundational truths of the Christian faith and lure them into a direction that is wrong and false and it is a message from the very pit of hell. We need to recognize that miracles alone are not enough. The miracle, the message, and the character of the person must all be taken into consideration. What's interesting, speaking of John the Baptist in, in John chapter 10, verse 41, we read this, that John the Baptist was a man who was sent from God, yet John did no miracles. I think that's fascinating. That John 10, 41 says that he was a man of God, yet he did no miracles. Listen and listen carefully. Satan can perform miracles using men that seem to rival those of God. This is how he opposed Moses in the court of Pharaoh. And for your own edification and study purposes, read Exodus chapter 7 and Exodus chapter 8. Also, in the final judgment, there will be people who performed miracles. And if you've got your Bible still open to Matthew, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7 and look at starting at verse 13. If this is not a clear indictment, I don't know what is. Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 13. Once again, Jesus makes it very clear that there is a narrow way and there is a very broad way, that many will travel the road of destruction and that few will enter into the narrow way, which he says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there's our word again, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. The reason that we need to be recognizing this is because we live in an age today that is, this thought is so prevalent that sometimes we don't even hear it because it happens so often or it's stated so often, and that's this. We live in an age today where people are not very tolerant of narrow-minded people. That's the word they like to use to put you into a category where everyone can write you off. You are a narrow-minded person. You need to expand your horizons. You need to embrace other philosophies. You need to recognize that, you know what, maybe you're not right as you think you are, and they try to indict you that somehow you're proud and arrogant. And that you need to embrace all the other truths that are out there because after all, you know what? Hey, God loves all people and as long as you're sincere, every road leads to Rome, every, every belief leads to heaven. And for you to believe anything other than that, you're a narrow-minded, bigoted, religious right fanatic. That's what we hear all the time. Now, unfortunately, we have to deal with the truth of the Word of God and I guess Jesus would fall into that category as well. The same Jesus, by the way, whom they like to quote and use, who accepted everybody, loved everybody, and never condemned anybody's actions. Jesus loves everybody. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate. A very narrow perspective. For the gate is wide, the way is broad, that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow, that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. And a good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear, bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. What he's saying is you'll know them by the evidence that is laid out. Don't get caught up in what they say. Look at the results of what they preach and what they profess to believe. He says, not everyone, listen, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. 
Many will say to me on that day, on what day is that? There is a day that is appointed for man to die, and then comes judgment. Every human being will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Those who have put their faith and trust in Christ will appear before the judgment seat or the bema seat of Christ for the purposes of, be, of being rewarded for our life of service after we've accepted Jesus Christ. Everyone else will appear before the great white throne judgment. We're going to talk about that in great detail. For those, and they will be judged based on their works, and their works will demonstrate and, and be evidence that, that will indict them that they have never come into a relationship with the God who created them. They have never trusted or believed in Jesus Christ. That's why they come and say, Lord, Lord, listen to me on that day. They will stand before God. They will stand before Jesus Christ, who all authority has been given to him, Philippians chapter 2, that he will judge the living and the dead. All authority has been given to him to judge us. And here's what they'll say. But Lord... Did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name did we not cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Lord, didn't we do all that stuff? And you know what he said? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. And they believed that everything they were doing was in his name. And Jesus said, and condemning them, said, I never knew you. Depart from me for all of eternity, you who practice lawlessness. I don't know about you, but I want to understand what's going on here. It says, therefore, everyone who hears the words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. It says, and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against that house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded upon the rock. Remember in Daniel chapter 2, the vision that took place that Daniel saw that God gave him a vision of the future and it said that there was a rock that came out of heaven and that rock was none other than Jesus Christ our Lord and that God would build his kingdom that would last for an eternity. He says, and this is, he says, if, you're, if the foundation is founded upon the rock, Nothing will ever happen. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act upon them will be like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and burst against the house and when it fell, great was its fall. And the result of what he had just said was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not just as one of the scribes. Even though many perform, many perform miracles in the name of Jesus, they will be rejected by the Lord because they were never saved or come into a relationship by believing in Jesus Christ. Now the question and the critical question is this. What were the purposes of God's miracles? Was it to improve the quality of life by those who were the recipients? Certainly, if you were blind and then you could see, that would be a wonderful benefit of a miracle of God. Certainly, if you were sick and then you were healed, that would be a wonderful benefit of a miracle of God. Certainly, if you've never walked and, and Jesus healed you to where you could stand up and walk, that would be a wonderful benefit. And certainly, those who had, who had died that he re resuscitated, certainly, that would be a wonderful benefit of a miracle of God. But the question that we have to ask ourselves is simply this, what was the purpose of God in performing these signs and wonders through Jesus Christ? Now remember this, Jesus said this, what would a man, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his soul? He went on to say, what would a man exchange for his soul? Jesus also said this, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. Because it is better that you pluck out your eye than have it hinder your relationship with God. And now don't get, I mean, I see people, you know, but the point that he's trying to make is simply this, that our bodies are temporary. And his point that he made was our soul is eternal. Our spirit will live forever, either in heaven or in hell. His point that he was making is this. If your eye offends you, pluck it out because it's better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye, so to speak, than it is to not enter the kingdom of God at all. And so he had already laid out the foundation of what he was saying, and that was this. Hey, you know what? Don't get all hung up on being able to walk and on being able to hear and on being able to talk and being able to, to live again because it's appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. You're still going to die someday even though the quality of your life has been improved. The question is, what was the purpose of God's miracles? Jump to John chapter 20. And this is very important in helping us to identify that which around us which will be false. 
in John chapter 20, we read very specifically what the purpose of these miracles were. Remember, why did Jesus do the things that he did? Because in it was a testimony or it was a validation that Jesus Christ was the promised Savior of the world. It was also validation to John the Baptist that Jesus would do things that were never done in the history of the world and that validated his character as a person and validate the message that he spoke. And it also, remember, you remember the time where Jesus said, hey, let me ask you something. What's easier to do? Say your sins are forgiven or to tell this guy laying over here to take up his pallet and walk? And all the religious leaders said, okay, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. And Jesus said, absolutely. The easiest thing to do is say something. The hardest thing to do is to demonstrate what you say is true by your actions. Here's what he said. So he looked at the man and said, okay, get up and walk. And he stood up and walked. And he said, the reason that I did what I did was so that you know the Son of Man has the ability to forgive sin. That's why he did what he did. John chapter 20, look again. It says in verse 30, we read this. And this was after the resurrection. This was after Jesus Christ appeared before Thomas because Thomas said, I don't believe the bodily resurrection of Christ. He had a problem with the doctrine of the resurrection. And Jesus, and he said, and I won't believe until he appears before me and I can put my hands in his wounds, stick my fingers in, in the holes in his hands, and I, and I can put my fist in his side where they drew the spear, spear and, they, and they stabbed him. I won't believe any of that until I see him. And he stood before Thomas and Thomas fell on his knees and said, my Lord and my God. Never mind. I believe. In verse 30, we're told many other signs, therefore Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. What is the will of God? The will of God for all of man. What actions should we take? That is this that we believe upon Him, speaking of Jesus, whom He, speaking of God the Father, has sent. For God so loved the world that He gave us His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. In John 6.40, we read similar words that help us to understand that the will of God for man is very simple. In John 6.40, and that is this, And this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. What is the will of God for man? That we believe in Jesus Christ, whom God has sent for the forgiveness of our sins. The purpose of God's miracles was to lead people to truth. The purpose of God's miracles is always to lead people to truth, and that is belief in Jesus Christ and in Him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. The purpose of lying wonders or false wonders is to lead people away from the, simplic the, the simple message of the gospel, and that is that God loved people, that man is separated from God because we're sinners, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The purpose of God's miracles were always to lead people to faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. The purpose of false wonders or lying wonders or false messages is to lead people away from that message to whatever other message is popular for the day. We need to understand and recognize that there is a narrow way to heaven and it is so narrow that Jesus said that there is no other way unto the Father but through Him. That's as narrow as it can get. The same pre people who preach that Jesus is open-minded, hippie dude, wearing sandals, love, peace, joy, everybody's in the family, great, are the same people that will exclude the, the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ one day will come and he will judge the living and the dead and he will judge us based on whether or not we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone. That is the purpose of God's miracles. There are lying wonders, not because the miracles aren't real, but because they deceive people into believing whatever the fashionable lie is at that moment in time. What other methods of deception are there? You know, what's interesting, too, is for those of us who seek a sign, Jesus said this to a crooked and perverse generation. He said, there will be no other sign given to you but the sign of Jonah. That after three days, God raised him from the belly of the whale, and after three days, God will raise Jesus Christ from the depths of, of death. 
and he will raise him up bodily and he will resurrect him according to the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. That is the sign that God has given us. And there is, you ask yourself a question, and that's this. What miracle could take place in your life that would be a greater sign for you to believe in Jesus Christ than the sign that God has given us, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead? You think if God heals you of cancer, that God extends your life because the doctors think you only have so much time left? Do you think that if, if God miraculously revives your business, your economics, your pocketbook, that somehow God revives a relationship that you're struggling with? Oh, if God would just give me a sign, God, that you're there. That any of those signs would even altogether add up to or, or somehow or another be greater than the greatest sign that God has given man, and that is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? And he is alive today, seated at God, the right hand of God the Father, from whence he will come one day to judge living and the dead. I mean, can anything top that? Think about it. Jesus said, you are a wicked and crooked and perverse generation. Jesus didn't understand political correctness. All that he understood was truth. And the truth is what sets people free. The second thing that we're going to look at is this, persuasive speech. Could you imagine Persuasive speech. Now, naturally, the first thing that comes to mind is a smooth talker. You know, the type of person that, oh, you know what, let me go back to something. I just, I, I, I jotted this down and I got kind of hung up on something. Maybe you saw this article in the Orange County Register yesterday about a very popular televangelist moving to Orange County. Oh, I see some of you have. What's interesting about this is it also exemplifies that which we're talking about as far as being able to reach people. The television shows he produces reach millions, several million people in more than 60 countries. Right into your home with this message. What's fascinating about this is that his followers say he has cured everything from varicose veins to cancer. And heavyweight champion uh, Evander Holyfield credits him with healing his defective heart. Here's another problem with false teachers and false messages that come with signs and wonders. The signs and wonders may be real. But the question that you have to ask yourself is this. Who gets the glory and who gets the praise? See, this guy's followers are convinced that he is healing people. And they credit him. See, when God heals and God does what he chooses to do, chooses to do, he gets all the glory and he gets all the praise. And Jesus Christ is glorified as a result. Not man, but God. And that's always one good way to be able to discern the difference between, between those who come in the name of God and those who come in the name of themselves or their own pocketbook or whatever. Because persuasive speech is part of it. Persu- persuasive speech. S- uh, smooth talkers. Primary method of deception used by false teachers is persuasive speech. God warns us to be alert to such a tactic. Listen to Jude, cha- Jude 16, verse 16. There's only one chapter. Speaking of false teachers, Jude writes this. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. You hear that? They speak arrogantly as if they have a corner on all truth. They flatter people. And the only reason they flatter people is for the sake of gaining an advantage. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever seen such a tactic employed? Most of the time it's from people who are dressed up. They have our own last names. They're younger than us. And they're part of our family. They're young people. (laughs) And the tactic simply is this. Dad, you're the greatest. (laughs) To which my immediate response is, what? What do you want? Huh? We've all been there, right? We've all had people kiss up to us. Kind of like, come, hey, you know what? You're the greatest. Oh, wow, why am I so great? Well, because the next thing is, I want to ask you something. Oh, I see how it works. You see, these people flatter people. They tell them what they want to hear. They build them all up, but they're building them all up for one reason. Now that I've gained their trust, now it's time for me to get what I want. Isn't that interesting? I build you up, not because I care about you, but because I got an ulterior motive, and I want something in return. Colossians 2, 3, and 4 says this, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And I say this in order that no one may delude you with persuasive arguments to the contrary. You notice what he says? Hey, listen. In Jesus Christ is everything that we need. He is all our sufficiency. He is all the plan of God that entails. Jesus Christ and Him alone crucified and nothing else. He says, I want you to realize there are going to be people who come to you and say that Jesus and Him alone is not enough. 
Don't be swayed by persuasive arguments to the contrary. Don't be swayed. Why not? Because we've got the anchor of the word of God that says that Jesus Christ and him alone is sufficient for the sins of mankind. That whosoever would believe in him, it's by God's grace that we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that none of us would boast. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The anchor, the foundation, everything that we need to hang on to is that it is Jesus Christ and him alone. It's by God's mercy that we have been saved if we choose to believe that. See, the argument will be to the contrary. That no, 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 you've misunderstood. There's got to be more than just Jesus. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter 2, let's take a look at this one last point here, and then uh, we'll finish up next time. 2 Peter chapter 2, after Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 2. Homework for you next week. Sit down with your Bibles. Read the front index. Everything's there. If you've got a Bible that has page numbers, then you'll be able to cheat that way. If not, you may need some help. Divine interventions available in the form of tabs that you can put in your Bibles. Because if you notice, I, I, I get you know, people come up to me and say, can you slow down a little bit? And you say, yeah, you don't realize that I, I can't get the, most of the stuff that I want to. I'm not slowing down for you. Go get some tabs in your Bible. <laughs> or better yet, become a little more familiar with it. Second Peter 2, oh, not politically correct, I don't care. Second Peter chapter 2, look at verses 1 through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. What he's saying to the nation of Israel is that, hey, you know what? There were always false prophets that rose from what? From among you. And there will be false teachers who arise from among you. Circle that word, among and the reason for it is this. False teachers come as wolves in sheep's clothing. They don't come into us announcing from within, Hey, false teacher, here to deceive you. Thought I'd let you know up front. You know, some of us want you know, people to wear name tags. False teacher, you know, false message, true teacher, truth. No, I mean, it's from among us. There are going to be people that at one time even understood the truth and they've laid aside the truth because they've been persuaded and they've bought into the lie. Notice that he's talking about here. Hey, no one's going to say, I'm here to deceive you. In fact, often they are the first to be misled and have bought into the lie. That's why they're so convincing in their arguments. That's why they believe what it is that they're saying. That's why they're sincere. But you know what? You can be sincere and sincerely wrong. Notice that they will introduce secretly. Circle that. Secretly introduce. They don't, they don't lay it out on the table. They don't lay out their agenda. The most dangerous forms of false teachers are those who say the right things or they, say they use the right terms, but that's not what they mean by the terms. They use our terms, but they don't use our dictionary. They talk about Jesus, but the question for you is, what Jesus are you talking about? The people with the ties and the bikes and they knock on your door, they'll talk to you all the time about Jesus. Their advertisements on TV are all about Jesus. They talk about Jesus. Other groups that come to your door, they'll talk about Jesus too. The problem that you have to ask yourself is this. Who's your Jesus? Oh, our Jesus is an angel. Oh, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Who's your Jesus? Our Jesus, uh, he became a God. He was a good guy. Really? Well, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. Because the Jesus of the Bible is that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. That he is holy divine and holy man. That's the Jesus of the Bible. First John tells us to test the spirits to discern whether they're from God or not. Who do they say Jesus is? That's the first sign or evidence that we have of whether or not they really know Jesus Christ. And the biblical description of who Jesus is. Who's your Jesus? But they use all the right words. They word terms like salvation and atonement. They use all the terms, but they don't use the same dictionary. They don't define it the same way. That's why they're so dangerous. Because they secretly lay, aside, they lay their false teachings alongside the truth. And then once they've sucked you in, they start to throw out the truth and all that's left is the garbage. How do you think all those people followed a Baptist minister down into Jonestown and had a Kool-Aid party at their own expense? Well, he was teaching out of the Bible at first. At first. Then what happened? Well, and then he started getting into some weird stuff, and well, you know, but there's still enough stuff there that, you know, that was still true, and duh, duh. Come back next week, we're going to talk about how we're to be prepared for that. Look at verse 3. It says, And many will follow their sensuality because of them, the ways of the truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Notice the words false words means this. In Greek, it means plastos, from which we get our English word plastic. I like that. Plastic words. 
plastic words, words that can be twisted to mean anything you want them to mean. And God help us all to become better at discerning the definition of terms. We have just had an absolute butcher job in our culture of what terms mean and how they're commonly defined in society. The greatest tragedy is if there isn't about a million of them, of everything that's gone on in Washington, D.C. these days, is that we have all learned that if you are persuasive enough and if you are evasive enough, that you can get away with defining or redefining terms in a way that have never commonly been understood among the masses of people. And that is just an absolute crock from the pit of hell. Words mean something. They convey a meaning. And it's critical that we understand that when God says something, his words mean something very specific. Not whatever you want to read into it, or not whatever you, how you want to de- redefine it. They mean what they mean, and they will never change. And they have meant that from the beginning, and they will mean that to the end and through eternity, because the word of God will never fade away, and it will go with us into eternity. The truth of God never changes. If God says it, he means it. When we read of words like salvation and repentance and confession and inspiration, they all mean something specific, and the false teachers use the same words, but they redefine them. We need to recognize and understand that that is not the case. Satan is a liar, and his ministers are liars. They use the Bible not to enlighten people, but they use the Bible to deceive. They use the name of Jesus Christ to deceive and to lure people into their false religious beliefs. They use the Bible. Every one of them that come to your door have a Bible. They pick a verse, they'll read it, and say, this is what it means. And then you ask them, hey, let's read the context. Let's read the contents. Let me grab a biblical dictionary and encyclopedia, and let me grab out a dictionary of Hebrew and Greek words. Let's see what the words really mean. And then as soon as they hear you say stuff like that, hey, that's easier than just telling them you're not interested. Because when they hear that, man, they'll put you on a list of do not ever go back there again. <laughs> it's the truth. You say you're not interested, they'll come back. You start challenging them, and you start bringing out stuff, and they realize you know what you're talking about, what you believe. They're, they're free. off the list. Don't go back there again. See, false teachers, they know the truth. But all they've decided to do is deny it and lay it aside. I like what I heard about a guy who was at a conference. He's a liberal pastor who was asked to read a paper at a conference on Paul's views of justification by faith. He read a paper that superbly presented the truth of the gospel and justification by faith. A man went up to him and said, I didn't know you believed that. He said, I don't. They didn't ask me what my views are. They asked me what Paul's views were. Isn't that interesting? I don't believe that, but I'll tell them what Paul's views are. You wonder how many interviews go something like that. I'm being interviewed for a job as a pastor. What do you want to hear? And that's what I'm going to say. But that may not be what my agenda is but I'm going to tell you the right thing. I'm going to tell you the right words. But you know what? Once I get in control, once I get some power, once I get some people to kind of buy into this, then I want to go a direction that I want to go. There's a way that seems right to men, but the end is destruction. You know, what's interesting is Apollos, uh, read in Acts chapter 18. Apollos was a man who was sincere about what he preached, but what he preached was wrong before God. Acts 18, we'll quit on this. Acts 18, verse 24. The exciting thing about never finishing is there's always something to look forward to next time. Acts 18, look at verse 24. Now there was a certain Jew named Apollos, and he was an Alexandrian by birth, and he was an eloquent man. I like that. He was an eloquent man. He was very persuasive in how he spoke. It says, and he came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. And this man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside, and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he helped greatly those who had believed through grace." 
as he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. You notice that? He's very eloquent, very persuasive. He was a man who was uh, mighty, it says, in scripture, and yet he was teaching false doctrine. But see, what was, what was comforting about him is when he was confronted by the fact that what he was teaching was not right, he threw out that which he knew up to that point, and he embraced the revelation or the truth that God had given him through the scripture. And then God continued to use him as a mighty spokesman who spoke the truth of the word of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the apostle Paul says basically the same thing when, he, when we read this. 2 Corinthians 5, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, and we're done. And the reason I want to end on this is because I want this to be the last thing that you, that you think of. 1 Corinthians 2. I'm reading it going, that's not what I want you to think of. Not now. 1 Corinthians 2. Here we go. Paul says, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is how one way and the most important way that we are able to discern the truth from the lie. For I am determined to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the message that God never wants us to, be, um, to, to, to depart from. That is the message that is the foundational truth of what makes a person right with God. Jesus Christ and Him crucified to come to know Him and to receive Him as Lord and Savior so that we can become children of God to those who believe in His name. And there is nothing else but that truth. Father, we thank You for the truth that You've given us. God, I pray for those who continue to come and yet are struggling with uh, Jesus plus going to church, Jesus plus doing good stuff, Jesus plus um, you know, giving money, Jesus plus whatever it is. God, that we would understand that the truth of the gospel is very simple, and that is to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified, to put our faith and trust in Him, not to depart from that truth, the foundational truth of a relationship with You, not to be persuaded by those who come with eloquent speech and even with signs and wonders deceiving the many, but to continue to keep our focus on your word and what you have to say as our anchor to keep us from being deceived by every wind of doctrine that blows our way. God, we live in a world today that's trying to move to one world religion, throw out all that which is offensive to others, and somehow or another adopt and embrace a religious system that's invented by men. God, help us to realize that Jesus, and in the words of Jesus alone, that the way of destruction is broad and many will travel through it. But there is a narrow gate and he says that he is the way, he is that gate, and that no one would come unto the Father but through him. God, I just pray that each of us can resolve that in our hearts today, that we have a relationship with you, not because of works, not because we deserve it, but because you simply tell us that if we trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, that we are called children of God, those who believe in his name. And God, we just thank you for that wonderful grace, that gift that you've given us, and we acknowledge it and we receive you today. And we just ask for your forgiveness and that we try to go so many other ways. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.